नमस्ते एवरीवन वेलकम टू द चारवक पॉडकास्ट दिस इज योर होस्ट कुशल मेहरा ऑलराइट टुडे वी गोइंग टू बी टॉकिंग अबाउट अनदर बुक टुडेस बुक इज कॉल्ड धार्मिक नेशन फ्रीइंग भारत रीमेकिंग इंडिया एंड टू टॉक अबाउट इट आई हैव द ऑथर आर जगन्नाथन उतनी जगी थैंक्स फॉर कमिंग थैंक यू कुशल प्लेजर बीइंग हियर so so jaggi last time uh, you wrote a book on the jobs crisis in india now from the jobs crisis you have gone into the field of culture what what a what a turn how how come you decided <laughs> to do this because i had, there are two passions one is uh, economics so which i need to look at what's happening uh, uh, at the broader front because see there is uh, dharma has no relevance without artha that is the you know the dharmasya moolam artha is the chanakya the second mahavakya of chanakya sutra so i strongly believe that the two are very broadly interlinked so you need for good economics you need to have uh, good dharma uh, backing it and for good dharma you need good economics backing it so i looked at uh, jobs crisis from that point of view in the sense that that's the main thing that you need to address or um, uh, if you don't address it i think uh, you cannot preserve dharma either so this time i looked at the other end and uh, uh, but uh, i think both are mutually supportive if they go in the right direction so if i was to ask you in terms of uh, just preparation or research or working uh, fairly from a perspective of uh, an author which one did you find tough or both were uniquely tough in their own ways actually the jobs one is tough because it's a moving uh, target in terms of data numbers trends in the economy and the macro economy and other things so uh, by the time you capture a static picture of it and say okay this is your problem things have already moved on i mean there was no chat gpt when i wrote the book and today uh, the chat gpt looks like it will displace the entire uh, half the journalistic profession because um uh, anybody with chat gpt can write better than what he currently can right so uh, many things like that can happen the other thing is in the case of dharma i am not one of those uh, deep readers of scripture you know i tend to go at a common sense meaning of it the way it has meant to me i have read some of the stuff but i don't have to go into what was meant in uh, you know this scripture or that scripture i i mean broadly i have touched with some of them but my idea is that dharma has to be common sensical uh, it needs to meet some kind of basic understanding with uh, anybody otherwise it's uh, if only some deep philosophical meaning is imbued in it then you can't really reach out so my approach to dharma is far more common sensical not meant to touch too deeply into scripture and then you get caught in that own trap of uh, trying to uh, drag in with that scripture so i mine is to just look at the core meaning you know in sanskrit there are these things called mahavakyas you know that is one or two lines that actually encapsulate the the meaning of the broader thing you can write a book on uh, say something like um, uh, you know vasudeva kutumbakam which is a mahavakya but you get the meaning by just that phrase because you know that you need to connect with everybody and everybody has to have some kind of a human relationship with everybody else whether you are a caste or a tribe or social group you know so in that sense i like to connect with dharma with those big phrases which actually define dharma far better than if you actually go deep into any one text now one thing that struck 
me, I, we will get into some of the issues that you talk about in the book. But if I was to look at the larger picture, I do agree with you. When I was reading the book, A, it was a very fast read. Like even on Kindle, I think it was around 200 pages on Kindle. So it was not a very large book too. It's like, was there a reason by, uh, or like there was by design, I want to keep it very short and crisp, short chapters in the writing style? Yes and no. In the sense, fundamentally, I am not a book writer. I am more a medium to long form writer. And I like to focus on one uh, area first at a time. So the provocation for the book was actually somebody from the uh, card carrying secularist who said, okay, give me a what if story on what is Hindu Rashtra according to you. Right. So that I know what, whether you're going to be some kind of a theocratic menace or something else, you know. So uh, that was what prompted me to write it in uh, phases rather than try to write a book from start to finish with one central theme. But theme is central, but uh, I have looked at various aspects of it uh, because the sum of the parts is probably more important than the whole because the whole is very fuzzy. It's difficult to define, but the core is what is. So somebody, uh, this was a challenge thrown to somebody who, because as a, if you notice last three, four years, a lot of people have been talking about Things like Hindu Rashtra. You know? So somebody challenged you, say, what do you mean by it? And can you define what it will look like? So this was the provocation for me to convert a lot of my thoughts, which have been coming through several uh, years and months to produce this book. So that was the reason why I wrote this book. And it was not meant to be something like, say, for example, Aravindan Nilakantan has done a brilliant book on Hindutva, right? That goes very deep and that's a scholarly approach. My approach was not to be scholarly, but to give a good flavor of what uh, are the issues that we need to look at as this nation. First, define who we are, what in very broad terms, and then say, what do we need to do? What are our, what are we up against? And what are other things, other people who need to understand what we are and how can they adjust to it without giving up what they are? You know, like, say, for example, when you talk about minorities, I mean, obviously, when you talk about Dharma or Hindu Rashtra, it's going to get them upset, huh? right, for whatever reason. So my point is, what part of it that you really need to adjust to and what part you don't need to was also a part of my uh, uh, brief while writing this book. So I was trying to address a broader audience and not just somebody who already believes in this thought process. So... Uh- so I guess it would be fair to say that you were looking at uh, simplification of some of these concepts. I agree with you because I, by the way, yeah, Arvindan's book was fantastic. I did read it and cover it on the podcast too. Arvindan is a very erudite uh, person. And I mean, his, his, uh, I wish I had the ability of Arvindan when it comes yeah. to writing. It's just, it's, it's out <laughs> of this world. Yeah, it, yeah. It, He's just a walking encyclopedia of knowledge, but, uh, what I got from this book is actually what what uh, I, I enjoyed is that every time, uh, it, I don't think so, there is a week where I don't get at least four or five emails from young 25 and below listeners or viewers of the podcast, doesn't matter, who come from YouTube or, or through the audio platform. And they tend to ask me these questions, right? Who are we? like you started like it's a fundamental question people take it lightly like who are we because if you look at the discussion in india at a socio-political level both because you know people try to differentiate between the politics of the nation and the social reality i mean politics is going to have the social reality intertwined in it and and when you have you know political parties in india 
denying india's civilizational continuity till the extent of uh, you know the one of the pra- pra- premier leaders of india like rahul gandhi in the opposition he goes on and he basically says india is no entity other than a union of states created by the british so yeah. in in a situation like this do you think india's biggest problem is that since our inception at a political level because for the social consensus to reflect in a legal way you need political consensus do you think india's biggest problem has been the lack of political consensus about our social reality yeah uh, i mean partly i don't blame the people who say what they are saying uh, basically the issue is we are a deeply colonized society so what really happens is even when you look at the constitution i don't think there's anything wrong with it but the thing is it has been conceptualized in terms of um, let's say ideals that have been set in a eurocentric and uh, american context i mean you have a constitution that borrowed from the irish constitution the german constitution the french constitution and the american one and uh, sometimes i wonder look what's indian about this constitution even though i don't find anything wrong with the preamble or anything like that except this uh, nonsensical insertion of secularism and socialism is not necessary because you are secular and you can be socialist if you want to be you can be capitalist if you want to be you can be somewhere you want to be and uh, secularism in uh, the way we have defined it has anyway no meaning so it is neither fish nor fowl so the basic point i wanted to actually emphasize is that uh, we need to f- discover our own roots without claiming that it is something so pristine and so wonderful that we made so many mistakes in our own uh, 5000 year continuity right uh, we went in a certain direction at some point we lost our way maybe it happened during the two colonialisms that came in the middle somewhere we lost our way our ability to deal with the world on uh, our terms without understanding them without necessarily giving up where you stand that we lost i think uh, the two colonialisms which uh, even sn balgangadhara mentions that one was the islamic conquest which forced you to deal with it in some way then there was the british colonialism which dealt with something so what we are today in a sense or how we look at our own issues has been determined by these two major influences over the last 1000 years now it is not about saying one is good or one is bad but they did influences so in order to figure out who we are we need to figure out who we were before these things happened so that we can adjust to their realities without denying that they were also part of a history so that is where we need to be i think so when rahul gandhi says something i mean you want to think that india was a union of states but let me look at it this way uh, there are books written about the united states there are 13 nationalities in the us itself all of course emanating from various parts of europe and uh, the earlier american indian group that uh, existed so uh, they they are also called the united states of america they are not one nation hmm? there is a united kingdom it's called united kingdom not um not one uh, it's not called england uh, you know the nation of england right there are a lot of things happen in all cities but you can still be one uh, constitutional thing and today when samuel hunt i mean not now today uh, when samuel huntington say we are a product of the judeo christian hellenistic confluence right that is the basis of uh, america's sense of who we are now similarly we can come to that kind of conclusion even though we may have lived in different territories but uh, as diana ek and also earlier before that um, uh, you know radha kumud mukherjee very clearly said the ideas and geographical contours of this sense of nationhood 
came not from kings or um, uh, uh, you know some philosophers but they also contributed but from the fact that pilgrims from all over felt that this is a sacred geography you know and that is a huge sense i mean our geography and our sense of nationhood has always been geographical it's uh, uh, in a sense that we feel that this is your area and this is where all your pilgrimage sites are this is where your holy things are which is why later on savarkar also when he said uh, when he got his hindutva he talked about india that is your who think of the india as your pitrubhu and punyabhu you know so that was the thing so i think that continuity has been there in terms of how we thought of as the civilization and what is uh, common to us but don't you think every society has to have certain non negotiables it let's say for example uh, and in fact this has now become a crisis in the united states of america in the post woke america too but before america went woke woke in the sense in a very specific way i am not using it in the loose way that unfortunately it gets used in india india mein to you know you disagree with something even if it is remotely liberal it is woke it is not but uh, i'm talking about like proper woke culture which is coming from a very post modern lens but in america before that left of center right of center it doesn't matter they agreed on some things they had non negotiables in a society they would agree upon it do you think we have any non negotiable in india that we have agreed upon in our in in our politically diverse culture see i think there is a broad consensus on a few things that uh, we are a pluralistic nation i think most people will agree so in that sense they do but whether uh, but that comes essentially from our conception of dharma which is not equal to religion i mean we never thought of dharma as a religion you know because um, uh, and we were never uh, see uh, for the west dharma means religion i mean if you uh, just reverse the thing so their idea was a sense of culture that came from a certain uh, european context in the case of the arab world it came from religion Uh, very strongly religion and in the case of uh, europe and this thing it first came as christianity and later on a secularized version of it you know so you know, it's only in the arab world and the islamic world that uh, islam hasn't secularized so much in our case we could say that dharma is actually a secularized version of pluralism acceptance of different approaches to god truth spirituality whatever it is our relationship to the cosmos and things like that so i think that is actually acceptable to most people but for political reasons some people do not want to accept that you know but uh, if you actually scratch and you go and talk to a muslim on a personal level or a christian they to agree that they have no issue with i mean i don't think they will have a problem saying that i have any problem worshiping my god their problem comes from their uh, what i would call the clergy who think that it's a binary if it's either zero or one huh? so if you are one then the other has to be zero so it means if you accept islam means you have to reject other things whereas our thing is the reverse that you say you can accept uh, who you are but you don't have to reject the opposite you know so you accept the opposite as a part of the conversation even if you don't agree so this is the fundamental difference and this is where i think if we want to live in a uh, cosmopolitan and plural uh, civilizational nationhood these two uh, abrahamic religions of course some people don't like the word abrahamic let right? because it also includes judaism which uh, though it believes in a monotheistic thing it does not believe in the monopoly of its monotheism 
whereas the other two believe in it. They believe that this is the only way. You know, there is no other way. So that is the thing. These two people uh, communities need to adjust to the Indian realities, and if that happens, they will have no problem. Most Hindus would have no issue. And also, aggressive proselytization causes a lot of social disharmony. I don't understand why common sense things like so much changes in demography, if you think it is not going to create social discord and just justify it in the name of freedom of religion, it doesn't make sense to me. I mean, somewhere I think we need a dialogue between communities where there is an honest discussion of differences and where we can then come to a synthesis which both can accept. That is where towards the last chapter I have said that, look, we need to discuss this. We don't need to discuss it through TV channels who will actually uh, put one against the other. Right. Uh, we can find common ground. And I think the way forward is for communities to interact and find out where they agree, where they disagree and how they settle, how they disagree. with. You know, that kind of a thing is where we need to move forward. And that is essentially a dharmic solution. It is not. Uh, it is not a, uh, what I would call the uh, uh, solution that has come from the West. Because in the West, everything has to be clear. Church has to be separate from state. But uh, in uh, Hinduism or anything, it doesn't mean so. No, you, you say all four objectives, dharma, artha, kama, moksha, all are relevant. We don't say that one comes at the cost of the other and that you can completely separate all four. right? Which is where when you have Article 25.2, which says the state can interview in secular activities as if you can separate it from religious activity. You know, mm -hmm. so that is not possible because uh, what do you, I mean, I have found that it's almost impossible to separate the two. So uh, it's best to let the individual separate it in his own life and not let the state come into the picture and say, okay, this is secular, this is religious. And that is more a European approach to it, saying that there is no meeting ground between the two. Yeah. So I want to touch on two topics now even the secularism topic. But before that, I want to talk about, because you mentioned on the demographic challenges that, so in chapter 8, you say why Hinduism must become a missionary religion. Now, can you talk a little bit about that? that now, the, I found that to be uh, chapter, in fact, I would say chapter 8, chapter 9 uh, are very important in, in my view. So, so let's talk yeah. about that now. Yeah, two things. Uh, when I say Hinduism must become a missionary uh, religion, I did not mean uh, in the way people understand it to mean, though I, it, is, it also is part of that. Uh, Hinduism has always been a missionary religion, but our missionary activity was not in the way Christianity and Islam view missionary activity. Their objective of missionary activity is to convert and get the numbers on your side, right? Our thing was to discuss ideas, throw out, because I mean, if you look at it, from ancient times, whether you look at uh, Shankara or uh, Ramanujacharya or um, for that matter, uh, you look at uh, Basavacharya or you look at uh, anybody, you know, I mean, or you look at the Bhakti movement or you look at uh, Narayana Guru or you look at Chaitanya Deva, Kabir or Tulsi Das, each one of them was a missionary in his own way, right? They just said, let me find what is great about something and talk about it and things. They didn't, they were not trying to say, okay, now you have to reject what you already have and come and become what I say you must become, right? So that is the difference between the Hindu missionary activity and the uh, Christian and Islamic idea of missionary activity. They, they are uh, at, at the margin, they are becoming more like politics because they want numbers, they want uh, vote share, that kind of thing. They want to become market share based. Yeah? See, for example, 
there are great things in Christianity. Gandhi found it easy to take uh, one great thing that it really moved him, the Sermon on the Mount. And he said, that's the whole of Christianity. I'll adopt it in my life. Did he become a Christian because of that? No. He could remain a Hindu, adopt what he thought was great about Christianity and continue to be exactly as it is. Now, if Gandhi has to become George in order to accept the Sermon on the Mount, that is a violation of the spirit of uh, true conversion where you are taking what you want from the best parts or whatever you want. It's like, you know, in the old days, we used to have those long playing records. You want one song, but you have to buy the whole damn album. Now you can buy the song you want and be exactly as you are. So this is the difference between uh, the conversion strategies of the two religions that started in a desert and the, relig and the dharma and religions that started here. Though I call them religions, Buddhism, Jainism often do not have the need for a god. They just say ethical conduct, right conduct, those kind of things. One says ahimsa, that is your important thing. Then uh, the same thing with Sikhism. You know, I mean, it started out as a reform movement. It is a, what I call a crossover religion. One of the religions that moved partly towards the Islamic way, when suddenly they said, okay, the 10th guru is the final guru, no further gurus. And next time it's this holy book that's your guru. So they partially moved over from a dharmic approach to a slightly somewhere in the middle. So what I'm trying to tell you is, when you say missionary, uh, because of the demographic challenge, we need to look at the numbers as well. And which is where, uh, if you look at uh, Abraham Maslow's concept of hierarchy of human needs, at the very basic level, you need food and security. And you need somebody to tell you that, look, religion means if you do these three things, uh, God will look after you, you know? apart from giving you food and clothing and things. Right. So when I say we need to be missionary, we need to uh, tackle the bottom end of the market where the need is very basic. And you need somebody to reach you up to the base camp, after which you can go to the high metaphysical thought of Hinduism or Buddhism and all that. But at the base level, you just need to feel safe, secure, and you feel you're assured and you feel that there is some godliness on your side. So you need to say like, this is what is the appeal of say, Christianity and Islam. Islam says, okay, you pray five times a day, go once in a lifetime to Hajj and this and you're done. Huh? And you just have to say the Shahada and you're done, right? So at some level, I think you need to manage the challenge at the mass end. And you probably need to do some of that in order to see that these people remain long enough in Hinduism to gain at with uh, once they move beyond the basic need stage, they can then explore the greatness of it. But once you move to the other side, you basically lost them forever. I mean, uh, almost because those sides are binary. They say, if you are this, if you are an apostate, we might even kill you. Huh? Right. If you're going to go into that system, then you're afraid to even leave it, even if you found something better. You know, today there are a lot of uh, ex-Muslims who prefer to keep silent rather than talk about it because they fear for yeah. what their own lives. You know, so it, I think the issue is we need to try and keep people dharmic at a basic level where when they get the chance to discover some of the higher things in our uh, uh, you know, uh, view of the cosmos and our larger realities, then they can explore it. But once you convert, you lost that almost. And it's very, very difficult to come back in your own lifetime. Just imagine two major things happened during Tipu's raids on Kerala huh, and the Mopla revolution. Some people got converted fully and uh, Hinduism didn't have a way to get them back. Let's assume somebody went there and he got, uh, he was forced to eat uh, beef or whatever it is, right? Then the remaining Hindus did not allow him to come back. So, uh, because they said, now you are out. Once you're out, you're out. I mean, 
the other religions make make it easy to come in and not get out our religion makes it easy to get out and not come in which is ridiculous i think we need to correct that imbalance and say that anybody can come back if you have made a mistake and you think you are want to remain a hindu so we need to be missionary in that sense whereas in the general thing of ideation and sharing great ideas we have always been a missionary religion but we need to be at the bottom end of the market for uh, spirituality we need to say okay these are basics please follow them yeah in uh, in fact this reconversion issue is one of the seven shackles that even yeah. savarkar talks about right. that uh, that that was a major problem in the hindu society where i mean for some odd reason the hindu uh, i don't know what word can we use but the the people who had control over who gets to be the hindu in a technical sense would yeah. always be the biggest roadblock in uh, proselytization and uh, savarkar used to find that uh, to be extremely weird and yeah. savarkar was right i was like who would be uh, you know i mean i mean why would you want not want your numbers to increase but apparently the people who were the deciding factors did yeah correct i think uh, that happened largely because the hindus were largely complacent uh, the thing the distinguishing factor about people who are for whom we broadly call hindu is that they 90% of them are in one geography so they always had a sense that their numbers are pretty large anyway but they don't know that this demography is a long term and slow moving thing and once it starts moving against you we saw that in 1947 you had no option but to split the country right now this can happen in more geography so when people look at uh, the overall hindu population in india and say oh you have nothing to fear it is typical of that statement delhi durast you know so you you know that actually things are changing slowly the ground is shifting under your feet you're not looking at it i mean say at least in three states uh, kerala assam and of course kashmir huh? uh the demography has already started moving significantly against hindus right in large parts of many other countries and many other states like say sort of west bengal eastern bihar andhra uh, tamil nadu again it has started moving against you so over a, uh, if you look at india each district on an average has more than 2 million people huh? hmm. which is more than 85 countries in the world 85 countries have fewer than 2 million uh, population right yeah so we are talking about each district if you look at it the demography is changed quite dramatically and when that happens hindus start moving out which of course if you are secular you cannot even admit that and because uh, demographic consolidation tends to happen this way and before you know you will have to be faced with another request for a partition or at least a partitioning of minds uh, say in areas like western up uh, northern uh, central west bengal assam i mean they are already thinking separatist thoughts you know so how do you change and a whole of northeast for the example i mean hinduism doesn't exist in uh, nagaland mizoram and probably disappear in meghalaya too i mean assam is the probably the last one left so uh, we have got to look at demography differently and you have to look at it at the smaller level the which is where the changes are very significant and we are not noting so we should we keep aggregating it at the india level it will look like nothing is happening you have nothing to fear but you have to look at it in a disaggregated way true true now i want to talk about this um another major problem that seems to be a serious point of concern for uh, some people is what is a hindu rashtra and uh, it stems from a definitional problem uh i'm not even talking about uh, the left's criticism because the left 
only has one line in India. We are making India Hindu Pakistan. Now there are so many assumptions that they make that Islam yeah. and Hinduism are the same religion. That Correct. means they have the same beliefs. So whatever is happening there will happen here because at a fundamental level, both religions are the same. Like I'm not saying Hinduism has zero problems. Anybody who knows me and follows me knows I have criticized Hinduism too. But the point is at least the working definition over there matters a lot. But in India, like uh, uh, Gautam Desi Raju has also mentioned this in his book. Harsh has spoken about it. Now you also have spoken about it uh, or written about it in the book. Like, what do we do with this fundamental misunderstanding of what a Rashtra is and what a Rajya is? This Rajya-Rashtra yeah. dichotomy. How do we deal with this? How do we simplify it for the average kid on the road? See, for the av average uh, Hindu music and uh, Hindu-hating individual who has either um, Western sense of Hindus being a very uh, bad idea, Hinduism being a very bad idea, and the people, uh, our own elites who have internalized that Western critique of Hinduism during colonial periods and they continue to think so that. For them, uh, Hinduism is nothing but, uh, Hindu Rashtra is nothing but a, a Hindu version of Pakistani theocracy, right? But Hinduism has never been a theocracy. I mean, so, and Hindus also be stupid enough, we'll say all religions are the same. But the point is, if you say all religions are the same, why object to somebody who becoming an Islamist or, a, uh, you know, evangelical Christian, right? So the issue is not that. We are not the same. But the central principle, if you look at Hindu Rashtras in the past, okay, none of them was theocratic. Meanwhile, the kings, for example, there are kings who have been Hindu, but they used to favor Buddhists and others. There are kings who favored Buddhism themselves, but they used to give money to temples and uh, other things. There was a Krishna Devaraya who had, his, uh, I mean, who had a uh, lot of Muslims in his thing. So did Shivaji. So it was never theocratic in any sense, even when you're talking about a Hindu Raj. Right? right. So there is no reason. And the other reason why a Hindu Rashtra will never really be a theocratic state is because uh, Hinduism is not one single religion. I would say there is, there are Hindus. And there is Hindutva, which is your own way of defining what how Hindu you are. But there is no such thing called Hinduism. Because Hinduism presumes that there is one central set of fundamentals or belief systems, uh, which actually uh, uh, everybody shares. Like in Christianity, you know, if you don't believe in the uh, hol uh, holiness of uh, the son of God. And in Islam, if you don't believe that Muhammad is the last prophet of Allah, then you are not by any stretch of imagination, uh, a Christian or a Muslim. There is no such defining factor here, which is why if you have a Hindu Rashtra, it will be de more defined by what you cannot do in the state rather than what you will. The state will not say, like for example, simple thing, we have Shaivism, Vaishnavism. You think they will, any one of them will agree to uh, a state religion being defined in Shaivite terms or Vaishnavite terms or in the Shakti terms? No, they are not. Or Tantric that kind of stuff, right? So each one of them is so different that when they do agree on the idea of a Hindu Rashtra, they will make sure that nothing is imposed from above as a theocracy. You know, what is, what is, what will be, if at all, any kind of state thing will be some kind of restrictions on funding of, you know, heavy missionary activity based, uh, intended to convert or uh, bringing in uh, concepts like that my loyalty is outside this 
whole country and things and those kind of things probably need to be campaigned against though one cannot force anybody to think that you are a indian and you don't have a loyalty to anybody except india but uh, those are things uh, which i think we need to inculcate in all those who do not believe in the idea of a dharmic nation and the dharmic nation will never be or should never be a theocratic state and i hope it never if it does come to be it will never be one fair enough so your thoughts are pretty much in line with what harsha said what i say and what uh, gautam desi raju has also said that basically uh, it is not the opposition to the hindu rashtra it is and, and i've said it so many times like which country does not have some spillover of its rashtriya identity on its raj identity Raj right. identity, right. like in, in for I always give this example in America. The note says, "In God yeah. we trust." Exactly. Is that a is that Sri Ram? Are they <laughs> saying it is Sri Ram? No, it is clearly the Christian God. Everybody yeah. knows it. It is God, the God of the monotheists. So right. let's not kid kid around. That every country has some spillover of the Rashtriya identity on the Rajya identity. the debate we should be having is what level is the spillover going to be like yeah. if the spillover crosses that level where we're like eh, now this is not good that's when mm-hmm. we should have the problem and i yeah. think most of us are going to have a problem with that which is yeah, yeah. clear correct uh, not only that i mean uh, if you go to europe the european court of justice had a interesting case where i think in some uh, uh, i think in uh, italy i think a lot of classrooms had some christian symbols so somebody who was not a christian uh, took the matter right up to the european court of justice and said that look this is an imposition on me because i am not a christian right so the court of justice held that look certain cultural symbols from the past cannot be seen as an imposition on somebody else merely because they are there and it is part of that Uh, their culture and it is not about imposing their religion on you it's about a culture right so it's only in the abrahamic religions where the uh, uh, the uh, i mean like you have things like tablighi jamaat saying that oh all this is not islam you have to remove 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 that kind of stuff and uh, they, this is shirk this is kufr and i mean there is too much emphasis on what is not islam and what needs to be removed that kind of theocracy is dangerous in uh, hindu rashtra there will be nothing like that you cannot Uh, uh in fact no hindu can ban any other hindu from thinking any other way so they far less chance that they will ban any muslim from following his own religion or his own uh, culture in any ways as long as it is not meant to be a threat to other things you know the limitation is don't uh, do what you want to do do be what you want to be but don't think that it is a binary where if you want to be what you are others cannot be what they want to be that is your idea of hindu rashtra that is the idea of dharma so then i can connect this perfectly to your 12th chapter which you ca- call the case for hinduism light isn't the hinduism light basically the conception that we talk about the case for the hindu rashtra yeah no it is both it is slightly internally focused basically what i talked to you a little earlier uh, that you need to be a little bit of a missionary religion for people who are most vulnerable to conversion you know Mm-hmm. so till till you reach a certain level of economic well being where they are not going to be swayed by a little school admission or a little a job given in a in a place of worship of christianity or islam and you say that is good enough for me i am willing to convert because i don't get food to eat so till they pass that 
basic uh, safety and security measure, you need a Hinduism light because that's what will keep them in a place where they can then decide for themselves when their own persona becomes more adult. You know, you're at a very childhood stage. Uh, I don't mean childhood in a very negative sense, but that you need basic security and safety when you're a kid, right? At 18, you can start thinking about whether I want to do what my father did or not and that kind of stuff. But before that, your parents set your agenda and you need that Hinduism light to tell you go, no go areas so that you remain within the broad area as defined by dharma. But after that, you can choose not to live the way you've been taught. You know. Fair enough. But then in the case of this Hinduism light, uh, I think a lot of... Uh, Again, I want to be very careful with my words. Yeah. A lot of opposition, a lot yeah. of opposition will be coming from, let's say, people who are into, you know, more purity and more yeah. uh, finesse. So yeah. they will be like, no, this light version of Hinduism leads to dilution of Hinduism. That is in Hinduism. And then we get into all these certification issues. Like, you know, there are multiple certifying agencies on social media certifying everyone as too Hindu, <laughs> nahi hai, too Hindu hai, uh -huh. kind of a thing. Yeah. So how do we deal with that opposition from within the Hindu, Hindu society? Yeah, I think we need to politely disagree with them and tell them that, look, uh, your version is fine, but your, it is still your version. It is not, it cannot, you can't, you can't decide that you will decide what everybody is in terms of, see, the one of the big things, uh, the defining things of being Hindu is that you can define your Hinduism the way you want, even at the individual level, right? You can uh, have an Ishta Devata. I mean, you decide that you want a God that caters to your particular spiritual needs or religious or temporal needs, right? So, which means that anybody who says that you can't define it. Say, like for example, the Bhakti movement was a mass movement. It was intended to bring uh, currently the kind of people who are vulnerable to conversion tactics of the missionaries. Uh, it was actually Bhakti movement helped helped all of them stay there by making it very clear. So, you sing the praises of uh, you know like Tyagaraja and all that, and it sort of uh, kept people in because. There was an emotional connect with the idea, cultural idea of India. And it was done at a simple level. And the temples fed the poor and did all these things. So you need to that level of missionary work also. Uh, we have forgotten that. And one of the reasons why we have forgotten that is because uh, somewhere during the British Raj and later on secular Raj, we have allowed our temples to be nationalized. They have become public sector entities now. So when you become that, there is no way you can actually practice uh, everyday Hinduism where you uh, help them at basic things. Uh, that doesn't happen. So uh, once the <laughs> once your spirituality becomes a public sector goal, you know where uh, you will end up exactly where Air India did. You finally need a Tata to rescue it, <laughs> right? <laughs> so that's what has happened. Hundred thousand temples in the public sector just in South India, and now increasingly. I'm not even in favor of the Ram Temple finally being um, so influenced by uh, the center and UP governments, you know, mm -hmm. which means it's very dangerous. Say tomorrow, some kind of a Samajwadi fellow comes there and he starts interfering with the temple. What do you do? You have to create uh, self-governing structures, just like you do in, say, SGPC or something like that. So you can have a Hindu Temples Act where you create a membership which then decides how the thing will be governed. And slowly start handing them over. But the politicians have no need to do that. They run so much temples because there is so much money at stake. 
so they don't want to give it and even hindu politicians are happy of that because when they are ruling they are happy to keep it in state control you know obviously look at uh, somnath who stays yeah. in the trust of the somnath for years right. Everybody right. knows it. We don't need to take names. Everybody right. knows who sits in there. It's not like they've given up the control of Somnath, right? And it's right, been right. the BJP has been governing Gujarat now for so many years. That's but right. then, what do you do of this debate? Uh, because see, Anand also did this talk where he gave eight points about why eight reasons why Hindus are second-class citizens in their own country. And obviously, you know, from chapter thirteen onwards, like thirteen, fourteen, fifteen, sixteen, uh, are specifically about. Uh, constitutional legal issues in india where in your book where you mention all the issues where the state actively works against the majority community for that but on this temple freedom movement like what is freedom jaggi in that sense like i always explain try to explain to people my experience in maharashtra where you know there are should there be fundamentally i am in agreement with the concept of temple freedom myself i have i have yeah. openly supported it but yeah. what worries me is when i see small temples what if what happens to those small temples they can't sustain themselves so what if they need state support so when we talk about temple freedom can we come up with a model which says the temple can decide whether it wants to stay inside government control or when, whether it wants to go outside no no i think uh, uh, let's look at it from a long term goal point of view they should be outside okay now you don't need state control suppose some temple has really fallen into dispute uh, disuse and nobody wants it right there is no need except for the archaeological part of it which may be let's say 2000 years old and nobody still wants to go there that if you want to keep it like a um, heritage structure then the state can come in but as long as it is going to be a living worship center it should not be under state control that part and also i am not uh, somebody who wants 40000 tamana temples to move into uh, private hands tomorrow right i think there is a process you have to create the um, what do you call the uh, devotee structure the uh, managerial uh, trusteeship and the kind of uh, governance structure that will make it democratic and sensible and subject to public audits and social audits right so that is not going to happen overnight you can't say okay you guys take it over and all that so you have to create a law for it you have to um, create um, how the self governance structure it's like when you privatize air india it's not about uh, getting three bidders and asking them to take it over but this is a little more complex you because there are not three bidders will not take over tirumala tiruvidhi tirupati devasthanams right uh, it's not one guy who is going to take it over but you have to look at us create the structure where Uh, the existing stakeholders in the temple plus new stakeholders can all join in something like a joint stock company you know you a lot of shareholders are there but there may be some shareholders who have larger interests who will take care of the agamas and other things and uh, you have to move in that direction so i think it is a 5 to 10 year process assuming there is a law now to start shifting these things and those that do not want to be taken over can remain as uh, supported by the state purely for archaeological and uh, historical and uh, you know that kind of reasons you know yeah but uh, then um, i i always hear from uh, members of the scst communities they are very jittery about this they yeah. say we have experienced some horrifying things not just 100 years ago at times even today like we can go and read articles where just now they have fought and they've gotten permission for being priests in certain right. temples so so how do we deal with those those arguments then because we yeah. have to uh, whether we like it or yeah, not yeah yeah which is why i said you need a law 
Yeah, that is, you don't need a takeover. You need, uh, when you denationalize temples, you need to have a law which makes sure that these things exist. Uh, so you need, for example, a system for having these people as part of the trustees. There will be no bar on anybody who claims to be a Hindu to enter it. And for that matter, anybody else also. And you need to... Uh, no, the other thing is, I am a great believer in new kinds of temples coming up. You know, see, the problem... Uh, is if there is a certain temple with a certain heritage, sometimes it will be more resistant to change than say a new temple, right? Like for example, there are a lot of temples which are made by the Birlas and others, which are not, uh, um, uh, which are very nicely maintained and well done. Okay, it is run by the corporate empire, but as part from their charitable activities. But uh, we need, for example, why shouldn't we have, let's say, temples? that are specifically created and run by women. I mean, Lalits is also one thing. Why not? Yeah, of course, Dalits also. Why can't they have run? They run uh, why can't the state or uh, for that matter, Hindu society give them enough funds along with their own funds to create their own temples where they set the laws, they set the rules. What we need is diversity. Once you find that the main temples have challenges where more people are willing to go because of their more liberal practices or whatever it is, uh, then uh, there, uh, the problem comes from monopoly. The minute you create a monopoly, so you need a law that will make sure that there is no monopoly of one group or one caste on what temples are. Secondly, you need new kinds of development, uh, new kinds of temples coming up in India, which create their own structure. So I am a great believer that not just Dalits and things like that, but women must come into the center of the temple movement where they create temples, where they run the temples and they can set the rules and where uh, it's far more inclusive from a feminine perspective. I mean, we are the only kind of religion that has female deities, the female uh, divine, and we have female warriors, all those things. And yet we don't really have temples that are run by women. Huh? So uh, very few, only few women priests exist in India. So all these things need to change, but that's a generational project. And so far, we have not encouraged women to think along like that. But uh, I think many progressive people would be happy to support these kind of things. So we need uh, wider diversity that will ensure in inclusion. Because once the traditional temples find that they have competition from new types of temples, which are far more interesting and far more inclusive and have their own standards for who can come and who can go and how they are doing. Then you will find that they, if they start losing people to this thing, they will also change. Like say for, I mean, the only logical thing for a Sabarimala is not to say that you can't do what you want. Let them do their practices. There is no, I don't see any harm in them worshipping Sri uh, Swami Ayapa as a celibate, right? <coughs> there is no reason though, because there are 140 or 200 temples of Ayapa which don't have this requirement. So you can go, if you're just an Ayapa worshipper, you can do. There is no reason which should not say that Ayapa can't be worshipped in another form by a different set of people who can create their own uh, customs, you know. So uh, customs and traditions can change. So uh, we need to have diversity in the way we run our temples also. And that is a thought we need to take for the future. We don't have to think that every single temple has to be run like a socialist equality norm. It can be, you can have your things. But let others also develop. And I think society is increasingly will be open to supporting these kind of temples once you establish. I know I have some relatives who said, look, if I 
to get married i want a female priest to officiate at my wedding you know she's a girl but she says that okay now the point is half of humanity once they start realizing that there are other ways of doing this automatically the pressure for change will be there na no? and if dalits who constitute about 16 17% of the population say look we will create our we don't need your temples let them say that first and then you will see the change in the mainstream temples which you want to keep them out the minute so you I, yeah it's like yeah. a more libertarian solution let the market fix yeah. it we, we can no no we can have um, venture capitalists that do temple funding for diversity right so there is no reason why you cannot do that and uh, for entire scheduled caste villages can actually create temples out of their area and they can become wealth creators i mean uh, there is no re- uh, temples are gen- uh, see nehru wrongly believed that only iits and dams make the temples of modern india actually the temples of modern india are uh, uh, supporters of commerce in a big way it just like you create these for uh, facilitating business and jobs temples also create business and jobs so we need to have that balance the dharmic balance is about dharma and artha so so before i wrap it up because you know we are uh, we are almost 50 minutes in now yeah to create this societal balance like i want to go in the earlier bit uh, in your book and i wanted to keep it for the last bit that uh, so you said savarkar got it more or less right but then in chapter 7 you talk about varna jati and the complex system we inherited look my views are very clear on this issue people who know me know matlab my system is very much clear new kit that's what i have always been i am more savarkar on this like savarkar was yeah. very clear yeah. like nuke the damn thing i i have no patience for this system that was the savarkar way but how do we practically work because i know that in the practical world these things take time they take time to study they take time to understand so how do we deal with this entire issue i think uh, we already started dealing with it it is just that it suits a certain narrative to pretend that everything that was wrong emanated with the caste system my point is we have to drop it we have to get out of that trap but the point is the more you are driven by guilt on the issue of caste because caste did not happen all of a sudden every uh, uh, like say in france they had the cagots okay even after their conversion to uh, christianity they had to enter the church from a side entrance same way like we tell dalits you go through a different door not the main door you know same thing in china china they the subay they were considered the underclass something like our untouchables whom the mainstream society did not want to see in general okay they are like that so people have had this business of some people who are outside the pale which was created there only thing is they managed to come out of it in a certain way christianity or islam or whatever it is helped them to some extent come out of it maybe it did i don't know what forced us to remain stuck in that paradigm forever but i think we need to find our own dharmic way of getting out of it instead of saying let's destroy new kid i mean which you say i mean uh, that's a solution but i think before you nuke anything you need to know what you're nuking you know so <laughs> yesterday i was in a different situation everybody says why do you want to have this uh, salami slicing policy in china just nuke them <laughs> i said look you can't do it uh, because society moves at a slower pace than the people who want to change it faster so my thing is provide the competitive thoughts that will uh, show that the old way of doing thing is no longer relevant 
and uh, our problem is we all think in terms of uh, my own life will this change when i am still alive will this uh, really become an ideal or a much better society when i am still around to watch it that unfortunately may not happen but it will happen because cataclysmic change like the french revolution things actually set things back far more because that caused more damage so i personally believe that create the competitive ideas do the change don't move do anything by a sense of guilt okay same thing i tell the muslims also the fact that aurangzeb destroyed some temple does not need mean you have to act out of guilt you just need to acknowledge that it happened and that it still happens okay so you have to fix that part of your religion that says that if you are a kafir i have to treat you as less than human similarly it's for us the same thing that you don't have to carry the guilt of the past saying okay we guys invented varna and therefore we need to feel guilty because anything moved by a sense of guilt will result in something that is worse than the thing you are supposed to change you know it's like you are trying to move against the system of natural merit and uh, thing that is evolutionary process where things get better right so that uh, I, I i i don't want to get into a situation where everything is done because you feel guilty about what happened in the past that is my only thing but change has to happen whether it will happen at a faster pace or a local pace i think we need to move towards one system i i personally think though uh, many people criticize the rss as foolish stupid and all that i think they are moving towards a better sense of a caste free society without Uh, and they are not by the way anyway driven by all the religious stuff that most hindu orthodox hindus do. they are not orthodox hindus but they are moving in that direction by trying to include people now increasingly in their organization there are more obc soon there will be more dalits and if you look at it over a generation you will find that a sarsanga chalak in 2040 might well be a dalit okay so i think they are moving slowly in the right direction even though they are seen as a brahminical organization but these things are happening if you see the composition of the bjp it is structurally obc today you know even though there may be a lot of brahmins still at the top but the power base of the bjp is obc uh, if you see most of the leaders will come from that community including the prime minister right and uh, uh, it is no longer brahminical in that mm-hmm. uh, top leadership sense so at the next stage it will actually start including things so the political and other processes of inclusion are gradually working their ways and we must give them time to work otherwise you will end up in a situation where we say that uh, everybody everything must be done only through quotas you don't need merit you don't need anything but over a period of time you will do us more damage what it will mean is that you will have a general lowering of standards everywhere without any significant change to your inclusion matrix fair enough but uh, i guess yeah uh... this is this has been the quintessential difference between the savarkar way and the rss way which i i think yeah. the rss way while i like the savarkar way i understand the rss way is more effective which uh, yeah. in, in evolutionary terms i guess we would call the rss way more gradualism they gra- they believe in yeah. gradual change take everyone along you know get all the stakeholders together like look the recent statement by the sarsang chalak mohan bhagwat was crystal clear he said yeah. i don't that's see right. this institution right. having any value anymore yeah. Yeah, that's he, all he said. Yeah, that's right. And uh, look at how he was uh, accused and uh, hit out. I mean, who was criticized by more people who are more traditionally inclined, right? So I think that uh, no, no. I am a fundamental believer in one thing: that revolutionary thought is good, but revolutions themselves tend to destroy more than they create. Huh? Whereas evolution has always worked in nature. 
so evolution is the right path so you recognize what is wrong accept the revolutionary thought but move towards revolution in an evolutionary way uh, how you do it there will be occasional ruptures there will be occasional terrible things happening but uh, we should not get uh, phased by that we should just say directionally if you are right you will reach there whether you reach tomorrow and then ruin everything in the bargain or whether you reach after 20 years it's good but people who are too impatient for change might find that they actually set the clock back more often i mean like for example our family planning program got a huge setback due to sanjeev uh, sanjay gandhi's efforts to compulsorily sterilize people whereas through a, a normal process of educating people and improvement in uh, gradual living standards the birth tfr has already come to replacement levels right so instead of in uh, 1975 we got it in 2020 or 2021 so that's the same thing that will happen with our social inclusion policies we will get there but it might happen by 2040 so i am happy to live with that reality even if i am not there to see it but i know that directionally you got to be right it is not necessary that the uh, you know utopia needs to reach there tomorrow got it got it yeah. La- like they say there there is a space for in the market you know people like me who are who are very harsh on this issue well we need no, no, to exist so that the gradualist be. the gradualist need to succeed the gradualist will only succeed when i take the extreme position that's all yeah, i yeah yeah absolutely absolutely it is the extremes that hurt more people to the middle you know so it is good to state something in very stark terms so that people see that okay hi there is a real problem there we need to do something about it so if you everybody says everything is chalta i no no everything is fine then you have a problem because the minute you say everything is fine then you had it yeah fair enough so jaggi before i go so what next now now that this book is out what 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 next are you planning to do no i will do a follow up of the jobs book probably or even if it's just a smaller thing like a monograph but i am watching that space very closely and there will be a follow up to this basically it's something like uh, uh the tasks before uh, hindu society in more specific terms like how do you need to go about uh, freeing temples what are the structures you need to create how do you need to do uh, what do you need to do about caste and how do you start creating the structures that will help you move away from rigid structures and polarization to something that is more synthesis oriented you know all those things basically i want to delineate something that i call 100 tasks before hindus huh? which uh, i list them in what i feel are a priority order to in a descending order of importance and uh, the most important thing of course is i say that start being less self centered and start shedding your ego and don't think that you have the answer to everything in dharma actually everybody has some wisdom to contribute and so start uh, supporting good causes here and there start giving some of your wealth away to uh, say genuinely good organizations that are working for the benefit of people that are dharmic ones not evangelical ones and things like that you know and those kind of things and of course what to do about caste how do you create the structures to make sure that caste differences reduce over the next 20 years then temple many other things like that so that is a book i am trying to work on it will be done again in phases like this one where i will probably write 2000 words separate pieces and then put it together into a book where um, uh, you know it sounds coherent you know 100 tasks before hindus is the potential title it may not be 100 maybe it may be 15 or 20 but 
I want to uh, I want to isolate what are the things we need to do so that we can all start doing it in our own small way. Fair enough. Fair enough. I wish you all the best, Jaggi. It's always a pleasure talking to you and reading you. I, I, I've been reading you for so many years. You're one of the many people I've learned a lot from. So I wish you all the best and really looking forward to all your future works. And thank you very much for coming. Yeah. Thank you, Kushal. It's very good to hear. Hmm. All right, guys, we'll wrap today's discussion up. But before we wrap up again, once again, in the description of the podcast, you'll find two things. One is Jaggi's Twitter handle. So please go and follow him on social media. Also, the link to buy the book. So just click the link, go and buy the book. It is, uh, it, you know, it's not a large book. Like Arvindan wrote a 500 page book. <laughs> Arvindan <laughs> is Arvindan. He writes long books, but Jaggi's book is yeah. short, precise. It's written in a very simplistic manner. So especially all you young kids who keep asking me, Kushal Bhaiya, konsi book pade? Jao ye book padho. You will get a lot of clarity. And uh, as far as I'm concerned, uh, please support the Charvak podcast. You can like this uh, video. You can subscribe to my channel. Or if you're an audio listener, please leave a review on iTunes or Spotify or Google Podcasts, wherever you are. Or... Uh, as I always say, this is a member-driven podcast. So please become a member, whether on YouTube or Patreon or on Fanmo or send your donations to UPI or buy the merch. I will see you guys next time. Until then, namaste. Take care. Bye.